You are listening to Paranormal Probe with Trip Tanfell. Once again, everybody, I'm Trip Tanfell coming to you from the 10 Step Studios, and I'd like to welcome all of you to the Paranormal Probe podcast, show number two. Now, on our last show, we focused on aliens from around the universe, and this show, we will focus more on some very credible UFO sightings. And as a reminder, don't forget, email your comments or your personal experiences to us at comments at paranormalprobe.com. Well, all right, let's get started with today's show. First off, UFO sightings are really nothing new. When people from ancient civilizations saw UFOs, they thought the gods from the heavens were coming down to visit them. Now in those times, life was very primitive. Those people knew nothing about aircraft or even much about the stars or other planets. Any happenings that were unexplainable to them was attributed to one of the gods, and there were many gods back in those days. There was no understanding of technology back then. Some people have very similar attitudes even in today's society. How many times have you heard someone talking about something they just don't understand so they explain it away by saying it must be part of God's plan? I think it's just a way for people to reassure themselves that there's always an answer for everything, but if you don't know the answer, then it must be God's will. When it comes to UFO sightings, according to the National UFO Reporting Center, UFO sightings increased from 3,456 sightings in 2018 to 6,340 sightings in 2019. Another substantial increase in sightings was reported in the year 2020. Here are the top 10 states for UFO sightings in the year 2020. States with the highest UFO sightings. Here we go, starting from 1 to 10. Number 1 is Idaho. Number 2, Montana. Number 3, New Hampshire. Number four is Maine. Number five, New Mexico. Number six, Vermont. Number seven, Wyoming. Number eight, Hawaii. Number nine, Washington State. And number 10, Connecticut. Now, if you are from one of those states, keep your eyes on the sky. And when you see a UFO, immediately report it to us at paranormalprobe.com. I will guarantee we won't cover it up or deny your sighting like the government agencies have a history of doing. But we do want to share it with other people that are interested just like you and me. Okay, well, I decided since everybody knows about the UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, that I wasn't really going to cover that story. That has been repeated so many times over so many years. I'm pretty sure everybody knows that story from start to finish. But did you know that just two weeks before the Roswell incident, a pilot reported seeing UFOs while he was flying in Washington State? The pilot's name was Kenneth Arnold, and believe it or not, he's the one who coined the term flying saucer. Reports say he saw several UFOs, and he described them as looking like a saucer if you skipped it across the water. So therefore, the term flying saucer came about. Since then, UFO sightings and reportings have escalated at a tremendous pace. 
Now, let's get started with the events that I picked out for today's show. We will be skipping around from year to year, so there's no chronological order to follow. It just depends on how big each story was in history and when I found each case while I was doing my research. First is the Chicago O'Hare Airport incident. This is a UFO story that is considered to be a major event, and there are numerous eyewitnesses and photographic evidence to prove its authenticity, and at the same time, there are many officials involved who completely deny all of the evidence. Now, this all happened back on November 7, 2006, just after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was an overcast day, but it was in the afternoon, so there was daylight. A UFO appeared and hovered over gate C-17 for about five minutes. Some witnesses say the object could have been over 20 feet in diameter and it made absolutely no noise. At the time, several United Airlines employees were pushing a jet back into position that had just landed. First, a ramp employee saw the UFO and he notified the crew. Then about 12 other airport employees witnessed the craft and several independent witnesses who were outside of the airport, witnessed the UFO and reported it. The list of people who saw the object includes pilots who are trained observers for things like this, and airline management, and several airline mechanics and supervisors. Apparently, the object didn't show up on radar, and none of the air traffic controllers would admit they saw the UFO, so the official statement from both the United Airlines people and the Federal Aviation Administration was that the so-called UFO sighting was a product of an unusual weather phenomenon. But here's what they weren't admitting. During the incident, a United Airlines supervisor called an FAA manager who was in the airport tower. Initially, the airlines denied this too, but eventually, a local newspaper, who was investigating the sighting, filed a Freedom of Information request, and the files of this case were ordered to be released. This was a major sighting at one of the busiest airports in the world, and the FAA refused to investigate it. The Federal Aviation Administration has a mandate to investigate all security breaches at American airports, yet they refused to investigate this one. They also refused to release any documents about this case until the courts ordered them to do so. So this simple fact is that the FAA tried their best to cover up this whole story. Now, do you remember at the beginning of the story, I mentioned there was photographic evidence? Well, there are reports that the picture was taken by an airline pilot who was in the cockpit of a jet, and luckily, he happened to have a camera on board. So there was at least one picture taken of the UFO. In addition to that, all of the evidence that was ordered to be released included audio tapes of conversations between air traffic controllers and several people who called them to report the sighting. Now, the disc hovered around 1,000 feet in the air, and then witnesses described that it shot up in the air through heavy cloud cover and punched such a large hole in the clouds that blue sky could be seen above the clouds. All of this happened just five years after the 9-11 attacks, so wouldn't you think that there would be a massive investigation into this story? But to this day, the FAA continues to deny the reports, and they have stated that there will not be any further investigation. So once again, we find that the government agencies continue to lie, deny, and cover up witnessed accounts of this UFO encounter. Next, I want to take you on a long-distance trip all the way to Zimbabwe in Africa. 
I love this sighting because it involves a lot of eyewitnesses, including adults and children. Now, I believe children can make great witnesses because they're so honest. They say what they know, and they have no reason to stretch the truth. As I said, Zimbabwe is a country in Africa. It's a rather poor country, and it's about the size of California, and it has a population of just under 15 million people. Back in September of 1994, a very extraordinary event happened there. I've read a lot about this story over the years, and I was lucky enough to watch a documentary about this event just recently. The documentary I saw included interviews with many of the people who were just kids when this case happened back in 1994. There were more than 60 children, plus staff, who experienced a visit by extraterrestrial beings. The ages of the children back then was from 5 to 12 years old. It all happened during a 10 a.m. break at school. The kids were allowed to go outside to a nearby field, and all of the teachers reported to the staff room for a meeting. Only one adult was with the children outside at the time. As the school kids played outside, several of them saw three or four disc-like objects come down from the sky and land in an overgrown bush area by some trees. Shortly after, small beings appeared. The kids would later describe the beings as about three foot tall, with long black hair, big black eyes, a slit for a mouth, and ears that were almost unnoticeable. And these beings were dressed in black shiny suits. One alien, it said, communicated with the children with his eyes. He warned the kids to take care of the environment or the world would come to an end. Then the aliens went back into their craft and the spaceship went back up into the sky. The children, mostly traumatized, ran back to the school and they told their teachers what had happened. The teachers didn't seem to believe the kids, but when the kids went home, they also told their parents what happened. Then the parents would confront the school about this event, which launched a series of interviews with all of the children. A psychiatrist from Harvard University named John Mack later traveled to Zimbabwe to interview the children. He spoke with them individually and had them repeat their stories and draw sketches of what they saw. The stories the children told, and even the sketches they drew, were all remarkably similar. John Mack's conclusion was that the experiences these kids described were most likely true. Now, on the documentary I recently saw, there were recent interviews with some of those teachers. The teachers now show a lot of regret that they failed to take these kids seriously when all this happened back in 1994. They are now believers. There were also recent interviews with some of the kids who are now adults, and they stand by their stories. I think this is a story that will continue to be repeated for many years to come. Now we're going to travel all the way to California for the Battle of Los Angeles. And this is going to be a quickie. There's not a whole lot of details. This is something that happened real quick. You may have seen a show on TV or at the movies called the Battle of Los Angeles. And it is about this event. However, the movie is nowhere near what the actual events were. So uh, if you watch it, just just be warned that uh, it is not completely factual. It's uh, just heavily changed or I guess viewer pleasure, so to speak. On February 5th, 1942, there was a UFO incident that rocked the United States. Again, this happened in Los Angeles, California, and the event is known as the Battle of Los Angeles. The U.S. had entered World War II about three months earlier. 
Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and at first it was thought that Japan was once again launching an attack on America, but it would turn out to be a much different story. In reality, this sighting would be witnessed by over 100,000 people in the skies of Santa Monica Bay. There was an unidentified craft that penetrated U.S. airspace and was followed down the California coastline. Our military fired enemy aircraft rounds at the UFO for about 30 minutes, but they could not bring the UFO down. Reports by eyewitnesses say the UFO received no damage of any kind by the rounds being shot at it. Several high-beam searchlights were brought in and were focused on the UFO and many people saw the flying disc. The aircraft flew up into the skies and quickly disappeared, and of course the U.S. government denied the UFO reports and claimed it was actually just a weather balloon. They did not, however, comment on why they couldn't shoot down a weather balloon. See, I told you that was going to be a quickie. This next story is called the Falcon Lake UFO, and it's probably one of the most famous cases in Canada. And as you will see, I have some issues with some of the details of this story, which I will explain as we go along, but I must also say that I believe the story due to some of the injuries and medical reports that are associated with this case. On May 20th, 1967, a man named Stefan Michelak had a strange experience near Falcon Lake in Manitoba, Canada. He was on vacation with his family, and as an amateur prospector, he was digging at a vein of quartz that he discovered. Stefan was interrupted by the sound of a bunch of panicked geese nearby, and as he looked up, he notices two glowing objects coming down from the sky, and they're coming right towards him. Now, these objects are described as being cigar-shaped, and one of them landed near him. One of the odd descriptions about this event is that Stefan reported that the UFOs made hissing and whirring sounds. Now, most of the time with UFO reports, people specifically report that the UFOs are being completely silent and that there is no noise. But that's not the case with this sighting. As a side note, this report indicates that Stefan Michelak was an industrial mechanic by trade, so he would have been very familiar with the sounds of many kinds of mechanical equipment. Stefan went over to inspect the UFO, which he thought might be some sort of an experimental aircraft. And after a few minutes, the UFO's doors opened, and he says he could hear faint voices coming from inside. He tried to communicate with the pilots of the craft, and he knew several languages, so he tried everything he could to talk with them, but he did not receive a reply. This is another part of the story that is abnormal to me. Almost all incident reports that I've read over the years always describe the communication as being made by telepathy. Actual voices are not used, but the communication is transferred through brainwaves into each other's minds. In this case, however, he says he heard something he thought was muffled speech. Next, the craft started to emit an extremely bright light from inside, and it was so bright that he had to shield his eyes. Then the door slammed shut. He tried to touch the UFO, but it was so hot to the touch that he got burns on his hand. At that point, the craft started to rotate. Stefan saw what looked like an exhaust vent, and suddenly a blast of hot gas blew out of the vent, which knocked him backwards. It caught his shirt on fire and burned his stomach and chest. The craft then rose up to the sky and flew away. Now, I also have a few suspicions about the descriptions about the craft. 
Most people who have close contact with UFOs describe them as being completely smooth and seamless. In this case, his description says the UFO has a door and exhaust fence. Now, I'm not saying that I'm doubting his story, because as we move forward, you'll hear about some very serious burns and medical issues he received from the craft, but I am wondering if his first thoughts about this being an experimental aircraft might be correct. The technology he describes seems to me to be a little more primitive for the advanced technology we normally hear about from outer space. Okay, so let's move on. After Stefan got blasted from the spacecraft, he was quite disoriented for some time. Next, the report says his compass no longer worked and he managed to find his way home, but it took him nine hours to get there. Once again, I have to throw up the red flag here. Earlier in this report, it was stated that he was on vacation with his family, so why would he decide to go home? I would have thought that he would make his way back to his campsite or hotel or wherever his family was staying, but that's just my observation. Next, Stefan was in pain and felt very sick and severely nauseated from this encounter, so he went to the hospital. They say a strong sulfuric odor was emitting from his body. He was tested for radiation poisoning, but the test came back negative, so there is no conclusion or confirmation of what caused his injuries. A few weeks later, Stefan took a friend to the site where all this happened, and they reported that there was an area of dead grass about 30 feet across and dead tree branches where this took place. And then a few days after that, Stefan brought the RCMP to the site. Now, the RCMP is Canada's version of the FBI here in the U.S. They are the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and years ago they actually traveled on horseback, but these days they've utilized modern vehicles. After a thorough investigation, there was some radioactivity found in the ground, but they found the entire area had higher than normal radiation levels. The most perplexing part of this whole story is the confirmation on the severe burns on Stefan Michelak's chest. These injuries have been well documented by inspectors and physicians, and many pictures are available online. If you want to check those out, just search for the Falcon Lake UFO. They say after 30 years, Stefan Michelak died with those unexplained burn marks still on his chest. It makes me believe that something really happened, but with so many conflicts with his testimony, I'm also suspicious of many of the reported facts. I will leave this one up to you to decide. All right, next in the lineup is another story that was witnessed by so many people that there's no doubt in my mind that it's true. This one has several twists and turns, so bear with me. This is the story about a significant UFO incident at the White House in Washington, D.C. Back in 1952, there were a string of UFO sightings that happened over two consecutive weekends. It all starts on July 19th. Shortly before midnight, an air traffic controller at the Washington National Airport detected seven strange blips on his radar screen. The reason they were strange is because he knew there were not any aircraft known to be in that area at that time, and the objects were not following traditional flight paths. They were jumping erratically all over the radar screen. The radar equipment was checked and found to be in perfect working order. Other controllers were then contacted in the main tower, and they too confirmed that there were several craft spotted on their radar traveling at extreme speeds and they had also witnessed one bright light completely stationary in the sky. More unidentified craft started to appear on the screen, and then they all started moving towards Washington, D.C., including over the White House. 
At this point, they were described as a whole fleet of UFOs. Emergency phone calls were placed to Andrews Air Force Base, about 10 miles away. At first, Andrews Air Force Base had no knowledge of the sightings, but that soon changed when a controller at the base also confirmed a sighting of something that looked like a ball of fire, but it quickly shot out of sight. Then a report came in from a commercial airline pilot who was on the runway waiting to take off, when he too saw some unusual activity. In less than 15 minutes, the pilot would see six brightly lit, fast-moving objects. So now we have several objects that were seen by many people, and all of them highly trained to monitor air traffic in the skies. Back at Andrews Air Force Base, they continued to see more of the unexplained objects, and they were able to confirm with the National Airport that they were all tracking the same mysterious lights. This event continued on for several hours. Then, around 3 in the morning, two F-94 Starfire Air Force jet fighters from a Delaware Air Base were dispatched to the Washington, D.C. area to confront the UFOs. By the time they made it to the area, all of the identified crafts had disappeared. The U.S. jet fighters patrolled the area for some time and finally had to return to their home base when they ran low on fuel. They returned to the Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware. When the fighter jets left the area, guess what? The UFOs returned. This led to some of the air traffic controllers concluding that the UFOs must have been monitoring the radio traffic and they knew they needed to go into hiding to avoid the military jets. Now here's some information that is completely stupefied. This is funny and alarming all at the same time. Most everyone has heard about Project Blue Book. Now Project Blue Book was an Air Force investigative team that was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and their sole function was to investigate UFO sightings. At that time, the supervisor was Captain Edward Rappelt. He was in Washington, D.C., and at first he didn't even know about the UFOs. This was a major event, and no one thought about contacting the guy who runs the show at Project Blue Book. The reports say that Captain Rappelt didn't know anything about all these sightings until next Monday morning when he was having coffee and reading the newspaper. This is amazing. Apparently he was fuming mad, as you can imagine, and he had to contact intelligence officials at the Pentagon to get briefed. It kind of makes you wonder why they're called intelligence officials, doesn't it? And just when you think it can't get any dumber, well, guess what? It does get dumber. Captain Rappelt, again, this is the top dog who leads the Project Blue Book team and was completely kept in the dark about all of this UFO activity, tries repeatedly to get permission to use a staff car so he could drive around the area to investigate the sightings, but he was refused. He was told you could only use a staff car if you were a general or a senior colonel, which he was not. And then they continued the smackdown. They advised Rappelt that he was authorized to rent a taxi cab with his own money and then toured the area so he could pursue the investigation. While at this point the captain was so PO'd, he left Washington, D.C. and flew back to his office at wright Pat Air Force Base in Dayton. When I first read this, I had to read it a second and a third time just to make sure I wasn't misunderstanding the report. I'm still bewildered at the chain of events here. Now, let's move on to the following weekend. It's now Saturday, July 26, 1952. 
we have a commercial airliner flying into Washington and a pilot and a stewardess both witness a moving light above their plane. At about the same time, both the National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base started tracking another wave of unknown blips on their radar screens. Some of the controllers visually saw the unusual lights and confirmed that these could not be shooting stars, meteors, or any other kind of naturally occurring event. This time, a press spokesperson from Project Blue Book was allowed in the tower at the National Airport to view the radar. Many reporters were also asking for access to the radar screens, but they were denied for fear that the reporters might try to take pictures of the radar screens. At this point, the number of UFOs being detected on radar was so massive that two more F-94 Starfire fighter jets were scrambled and headed to Washington. One of the wingmen did spot four lights darting all around at about a thousand feet, and he decided to chase them. He acknowledged that he went top speed, which was about 525 miles per hour, but it was clear to him that he couldn't catch up to the flying lights, so he gave up. He turned his jet around, and suddenly he noticed he was surrounded by the unknown lights. He immediately contacted the control tower and asked what he should do, but all he got was radio silence. They didn't know what to tell him, so they said nothing. He was asking for help, but they left him out in the cold to fend for himself. Throughout the night, many other sightings continued to be reported by commercial flights, civilian planes, and witnessed by two other control towers. Eventually, all of the sightings stopped. It was calculated that the speed of these UFOs, or identified flying balls of light, were traveling in the range of 7,000 miles per hour. None of our military aircraft was able to achieve those speeds back then. From what I can find, NASA finally created an aircraft called the Scramjet that was capable of reaching speeds of 7,000 miles per hour, but that was in 2004, which is 52 years after the famous story of the UFOs at the White House. It's also said that President Harry Truman got involved and decided to get to the bottom of this invasion, but investigations literally went nowhere. Eventually, the U.S. military gave several of their explanations of the sightings that included misidentification of stars, temperature inversions, and several other misleading excuses. As normal, the U.S. military position was to lie and deny about this incident, which has been standard operating procedure by the U.S. government since the beginning of time. The U.S. government has a documented history of hiding critical information from U.S. citizens, the very people who pay for their salaries. All right, well, next we're going to finish out today's show with a story that's only a few years old. And this story is mainly an opinion, but it's from someone with very high credentials. If you remember, back in 2017, there was an event that was widely reported all over the world. A space object had entered into our solar system that was first detected in Hawaii by the Panoramic Survey Telescope, which is the highest definition telescope on Earth. And this is the very first time an interstellar object was ever detected inside of our solar system. At first, it was believed to be an asteroid or a comet and was given the name Aumuamua, which is Hawaiian and roughly means messenger from afar. But then many astronomers and scientists agreed this object had different characteristics than either an asteroid or a comet. Now the story gets more interesting. 
a scientist named Avi Loeb, who is a physicist and a professor at Harvard University, has a theory that is shaking up the scientific community. Now first, let's take a look at his credentials. Avi Loeb is currently the chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. He is or was a member of many scientific organizations, way too many to mention here. He's also written many books, published many papers, and was even a member of the President's Council of Advisors of Science and Technology. And in the year 2020, he was named one of the most 25 influential people in space by Time magazine. So this is a guy who's very highly recognized and respected in the scientific community. Now let's move on to his theory. Professor Loeb has announced that he believes this newly discovered object in our solar system, Aumuamua, may actually be a piece of alien technology. He says the size and shape does not fit your typical comet or asteroid. It's estimated the size is only 100 yards long, and it's also slender and shaped like a cigar, and that's not even close to what other space rocks look like. He also explains that its reflective properties far exceed those of asteroids or comets by about 10 times the norm. But the biggest discrepancy is the trajectory of the object and its propulsion. When he calculated the flight path and the speed of this object and considered the gravitational pull from the Sun, it did not match other space objects. He concludes that Aumuamua is being pushed by a force other than the Sun's gravity. In addition to that, we've all seen pictures of comets and they have a fiery tail behind them, which is actually gases burning off in space, and Aumuamua has no tail. So in conclusion, Professor Loeb is sticking to his guns and saying that this is not a comet or an asteroid, and because of its highly unusual properties, there should be more scientific study done to learn more about what this might be. But now other scientists are pushing back because they think his ideas are too extreme. They want to stick to the same standard theories that they've been accepting for centuries, but Loeb thinks the other scientists don't want to consider any other explanations that might actually suggest that there may be other civilizations out there because it would redefine our place in the universe. So the headbutting continues, but what we do know at this point is that we have an unidentified object in our solar system that seems to be intelligently controlled. What we don't know is what exactly this is and who does it belong to? If you want to look into this for yourself, just search for Aumuamua or Professor Avi Loeb for some very interesting reading. Now, let me help you out with this. Aumuamua, that is O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A, or Professor Loeb, and now his name is Avi Loeb, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's A-V-I, the last name Loeb is L-O-E-B. If you search on any one of those uh, keywords, I'm sure you'll get to the right areas. So that is a wrap for show number two of Paranormal Probe. Stop back again and watch for show number three, which is about a favorite topic of mine, Bigfoot. Don't forget to drop us a line with your comments and stories of paranormal events that have happened to you. Just send your emails to comments at paranormalprobe.com. Thanks once again for listening in, and we hope you join us again next time here at the 10-Step Studios. I'm Trip Tanfell, and we'll see you the next time.